Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you, and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would give us understanding. That we would have Life and light here as we look at your revelation. We ask that you would speak and that we would hear. And may your spirit work within us to bless the hearing and application of your word. For Christ's sake, amen. Harvey Weinstein. That's a good name, isn't it? In fact, actually, it was the bad name in America until Larry Nasser came along and somehow managed to trump him, right? And you're like, wow, you were like the least liked person in America until this new guy comes along and has somehow managed to surpass it. Weinstein being a wretched, uh, allegedly a wretched uh, abuser of folks, right? This week, this weekend, in f- I think it was Friday, big article came out, finally, Uma Thurman was willing to be interviewed regarding Harvey Weinstein. And those of you that don't follow Hollywood, which good for you, you shouldn't probably, um, wouldn't be aware that he was one of, I mean, she was one of his first victims, and she was the one that he made his name and his millions off of. Harvey Weinstein's uh, rocket shot into popularity and fame was off Pulp Fiction, of which she was the lead actress, and which her interaction with him began, and which her victimization by him began and ran for many years. 
And she's been able, unable thus far to speak about it publicly until this week where uh, an interviewer, a lady reporter from I think the New York Times uh, went and spent a number of evenings at her house and talked with her and cried with her and processed with her and then published it all for us all to read. And you read the article and it's brutal, absolutely brutal as this woman describes her inner monologue over the last 30 years and trying to describe her interaction with affliction and pain and suffering and then trying to figure out what to do with that after it's done happening. She stood up for herself after uh, uh, attempted murder. They think she's, she thinks they sabotaged her car, actually, so that it would uh, go out and kill her in a tree. Um, she survived the accident miraculously and has since not had anything to do with Weinstein. Doesn't know what to do in her world, and it was staggering. It's just heartbreaking as you read of this woman who has no Christ, has no knowledge of the scriptures. She turns to her father's Tibetan Buddhism. He's a professor in Buddhism. And to see her really try to wrestle with the question the hurting's over. What do I do now? The affliction is over. What do I do now? You know, he'll never uh, victimize me again, but what do, what do I do now? As that uh, problem has afflicted her marriages, has afflicted her relationships, has afflicted her career, has afflicted all of her life, and she's trying to figure out what do I do now, but has no good answer. I'd love to direct her to Joel. She needs to read Joel. She needs to read the promises of God as it begins with a story of tremendous affliction. Now, a different kind, obviously. But a nation that is confronted with locusts and a locust plague like they haven't seen in generations, and they're worried because it's eating everything. I told this story Bible study because it made me chuckle. I read it that morning, but uh, Russia is hosting the World Cup, you know, and the Russian scientists are really, really concerned because they're already starting to do the math and looking at temperature and humidity and everything, and they're terribly concerned because all of the conditions are right for a locust outbreak to come from the south, which normally in Russia, they're like, nah, who cares? It's, you know, locusts. We don't care. They're Russians. Except for the fact the entire world is descending into Russia to watch soccer, which has to be played on grass. <laughs> How do you keep grass alive with the locust plague of the century coming from the south? They're already starting to hedge their bets, already starting to say, well, maybe some of the fields don't necessarily have to be grass, which makes me just giggle to no end. Only Russia would suggest something like that and just think that it's going to work in the world. I love it. It's been fantastic drama. The locust plague has descended and Israel has destroyed the land. It's absolutely consumed it. And then Joel says, oh, yeah, you think that's bad? Let's actually have just a thought process and let's reflect on something much worse. You think that's bad? Let's have something worse. And takes them through in chapter uh, 2, the beginning part there, mixing metaphors about an interaction with the army of God. 
And he mixes the metaphor of the locust and a metaphor of the army to try to express destruction and says, look, you think the locust plague is bad. The coming destruction at the end of time upon the wicked is infinitely worse. Therefore, repent. Turn from your evil ways. Turn to the Lord. Perhaps, perhaps he'll have mercy. Interestingly, Joel doesn't tell us if Israel repents. This is where the book kind of switches future tense, in essence, and goes into, well, what are the consequences of kind of repentance? How does the Lord interact with repentance? What does the Lord think about his people? And the first kind of principle, the first thing to see, we're going to look at in the text here is verse 18. The Lord is incredibly jealous for his people. Verse 18, the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Uh, We think of jealousy most often here as uh, a sin, an evil thing, because uh, we oftentimes are petty with our jealousy. I'm jealous for my ice cream, and I get a little bit perturbed if I go to eat my ice cream, and the minions in my house have consumed it all. That's not the good kind of jealousy because that's pettiness, right? That's me being upset over something I should be delighted to share with the urchins in my home. (laughs) Now, the proper kind of jealousy is that jealousy, that, that claim, that intimate commitment of this person belongs to me. This thing belongs to me. It's mine, and it's right that I claim it. I mean, better illustration would be not so much the ice cream, because that's silly and petty, but uh, let's say we, you know, as a family went out to the mall or something, we're running errands, or perhaps we went to a basketball game or something, and two strangers walked up to the kids and were like, okay, it's time to go home now. Um, no. When are we going to take you home? You're, you belong to us now. You're, you're going to go to our house now. No, you're not. No, they're my kids now. I'll take them to my house. But you don't understand. That will literally be over my dead body because I will make sure you do not do that because they belong to me. They're mine. The relationship, the intimacy that is built between us, they're my children. You're not going to take them from me willingly on my part. God here says, now look, uh, let's talk about Israel. Let's talk about the land. The locusts are destroying it. The wrath is coming later. But you know what? My people belong to me. Locusts can't have them. They're mine. The land, which is synonymous uh, for Israel as a whole, belongs to God. And it's not up to the locusts to destroy them. That's his privilege to handle discipline. He has pity. He has kindness on his people. And the book changes on that one simple statement. 18 is the transition for the whole book. It's been negative, 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 negative. And from here it's going to be positive, 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 positive with one linchpin in the middle. It's a seesaw. And this is that fulcrum right in the middle where, you know, you don't want to put your fingers because they'll get mashed when it's moving. The Lord became jealous for 
his land, for his people. You see, as we begin any conversation about blessing, and by the way, that's what the rest of the book is about. It's all happy stuff. But if you're going to have any conversation about blessing and happy stuff connected to it, the joys of being a Christian, the joys of human existence, all of the good things that God gives, the overarching principle needs to be in the back of your mind that it is because we belong to him. We're his. He made us. Formed Adam from the dirt. Eve from a rib. We belong to him. He can do with us as we, he wishes. Not as we wish, as he, he wishes. Because we belong to him. Likewise, if he chooses to bless, that's his responsibility, not ours. For we belong to him. And interestingly, he's jealous for his people, meaning that he doesn't want just anybody to be able to punish them or take off with them or do whatever else. For those of you that had younger brothers, you maybe understand a little bit of this, right? You are allowed to test, pester, test, and beat up your younger brothers, but no one else is, right? That brother belongs to me, and so I'm allowed to mess with them, but if anybody from school starts messing with them, oh, it's game on then, right? That brother belongs to me. They're my brother. They're my personal brother, and only I'm allowed to interact with them. And the Lord is, in essence, saying that in the best of possible ways. These people are mine. And because of that, I will act toward them a certain way. They will not be filled with affliction forever. It may be for a season. It may be for a time, but it's not going to stay that way forever. All right, so for those of us, and thinking about this again, kind of from the perspective we start of, okay, now that the affliction's over, how do we process it? Well, first principle we're going to think about is that, look, we belong to God. He's jealous for us. He doesn't just treat us lightly or insignificantly. He's very zealous in his jealousy. But then secondly is he cares for his people. And it starts in the next verse just how he begins to show his kindness. The Lord answered and said to his people, again, this is before they've even had chance to repent in some sense. Behold, I'm sending to you grain and wine and oil and you will be satisfied. Now for us today, that's like neat, cool, (laughs) awesome, great, I guess. But for them, this would be the equivalent of saying, look, I'm sending life to you, and I'm sending enough life to you that you'll be satisfied. You will have grain and wine and oil. That that is for them the equivalent of things we buy when we think snow is coming. (laughs) If you think snow is coming and you run to Walmart and you have to buy the things that you get when snow is coming, that's their list. Grain is the the substance of life. Uh, wine is uh, what they had to drink and it was the best thing to drink because you knew it killed the bugs in it so that you could drink it and not get sick. Uh, And then oil was both medicine and a cooking product. Uh, That's why you treat wounds with oil. It's very positive for them. And interestingly, how much is God going to give them? Look, the land around them has nothing. The locusts have destroyed it all. There's nothing left and yet God is going to give enough to satisfy. Now, I have to be cognizant of the the prosperity gospel folks love the end of Joel. 
because the blessings that are promised are just staggeringly great. But it is important that maybe we kind of clue in at the very beginning how the Lord gives his blessings. I'm sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. The design of his blessings and his gifts is not to be, I will give you enough grain, wine, and oil that you'll be so huge you have to roll each other everywhere you go. It's instead, you'll have enough to eat, you'll be fine, your life will be full, you'll be able to exist, you won't be marked by hunger and poverty. But it doesn't promise that he's going to provide well over. It's not the old Janis Joplin song. Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. It's not this idea that he's going to just pour out staggering blessing to his people and it's just going to be overwhelming riches. No, it's he's going to give what they need so that they will be fine. And then next he will remove their reproach. Now, again, for some of us in the room, uh, we're fairly confident folks or we don't really care what other people think. And so this idea is not really that important to us. Right? For those of you that are maybe not marked by social anxiety of any kind, this is a verse that's probably not going to resonate with your soul because you're maybe sometimes a little bit too hard-headed to care what people think anyways. But for those of you that are more of that little bit tender disposition and the idea of folks judging you, condemning you, damning you, or thinking lesser of you because of Christ, he's saying, look, that's going to be taken away. And again, for those that have been victimized in particularly grievous fashions, this is one of those amazing stigmas that only they can understand in the fullness, the richness, and the brokenness and depth of it. You talk with, uh, you know, any of the young ladies in the Larry Nasser trial, listen to uh, Rachel Den Hollander, again, great woman of God. The way they talk about the stigma that comes with, and even if society doesn't see them that way, they see themselves marked, filled with shame, a constant embarrassment to humanity. And what is God saying? Look, no, 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 no. Look, the affliction is taken away and so is the stigma. So is the reproach of the nations. You are honorable people. Your identity is that of blessing. I love how the shorter, larger catechism they have connected in the question of what, are the, what benefits do believers receive upon the second coming, the resurrection? The first thing is they will be vindicated. All of the, the suffering, all of the embarrassment, all of the shame, all of the difficulty, all of it is worth it in the end, and we are proven correct. Again, I recognize some in the room, this is like a lost point on you. You're like, eh, I don't ever think about that, man. Fair enough, that's fine. Those of you, again, with a more tender disposition, if you're more prone towards the depression side of the spectrum, if you're more prone toward the social anxiety side of the spectrum, if you're more prone toward the, like, I have hidden shame that just cripples me all of the time side of the spectrum, you need to be reminded that part of God's kindness for his people is to cleanse you of that. And the beautiful thing is that will be fully done in the life to come, but it's done now too. 
Israel doesn't have to walk around being like, oh yeah, by the way, we're the, church, uh, you know, we're the land of the locusts. Yes, we're the people who uh, starved to death for years and years. Uh, by the way, think of us with shame. No, 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 no. Look, we're the land of blessing. We're the land of Zion. Changing how they think about themselves, no longer filled with shame and reproach, but instead filled with blessing and glory. And then verse 20, which here he is intentionally nebulous. The grammar is intentionally nebulous. Uh, He is not referring to northerners uh, in contrast to southerners, for those of you that grew up in the south. Just to clarify, this is not a civil war thing, war between the states, war of northern aggression. Pick your term. None of those things here, right? I will remove the northerner far from you. And he's intentionally leaving the grammar open here so it could mean the locusts. It could mean the invading armies that are going to come from the north, uh, you know, as part of uh, Babylon and Medo-Persian Empire. It could also mean the army from chapter 2, which is God's army. And he's intentionally leaving it open to say, look, I'm going to remove from you what? All of the judgment and destruction that you could possibly be afraid of. All of the things that we're going to obliterate you, that are going to just consume you, all that's going to be taken away. You don't have to worry about the judgment that is coming. I'll drive him into a parched and desolate land. Again, if this is locust, it makes sense. You don't want to drive him into a place that's lush and green because it's not going to be lush and green very long. His vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard. Again, that's, that's army language, but um, that... Last part, again, speaks of locusts. You would take a locust uh, flock, herd, murder, whatever they're called, you know, send it out. Uh, it would go out to sea. It would die in the ocean because there's nothing left to, to eat. Fall to the sea and then wash in with the waves. And it would smell so bad because it's millions and bajillions of bugs rotting that after the plague was over, as it washed up onto the shore, it was like, ah, run away, it smells terrible. Using the same kind of idea of, look, those that are going to destroy you are taken away from you so far. The only thing you get is the aroma of their destruction. You're so safe that it's turned completely backwards. The only thing you see are their brokenness. I'm going to go a little faster because I'm not close to finishing. Will be now, though. So it begins with this great promise of jealousy. God is jealous for his people. It then migrates into, and oh yeah, by the way, not only is he jealous for his people, but he cares for his people. He then accounts for the weakness of those people and gives them a series of reminders as to why to think about them, how to think about them, when you're in the midst of sadness or affliction, what to kind of do. This is the way to process. Look at what he does. Four things here. We're gonna, first, uh, you don't have to be consumed with these things. Why? Because God has already done great things. Verse 21, fear not, O land. Look, don't be afraid. All the destruction happened in the past. Don't be afraid now. Why? Be glad and rejoice currently. Why? Because the Lord has done great things past tense. You can look at the past and think about all of the great things that he's done in the past, and it will help you in the present and help you to face the future. 
I know God is jealous for me. I know that God cares for me. You know what? I can go and I can think about the past and it will help me face tomorrow. Again, for those of you that are filled with affliction at the moment, I'm telling you, this is the way right here, how to think, how to keep your brain organized. This is the way to get out of overwhelming mental despair. Thinking of God's jealousy, thinking of God's promises, and oh yeah, when I begin to doubt those, I can go back and look at the past and how he's done that. I mean, you think of your own life. I mean, this is part of what we do when we do new member interviews is to have you come in and tell those stories of things that have happened in the past where you can say, look, I know that God is good because I tasted and saw that he was good in this realm, in this arena, in this thing. I can see how he has cared for me. He's already done great things. Verse two or 22, because we already see how he's helping us now. So not only has he helped us in the past, but even now we can see how he's helping us. Fear not, you beasts of the field. I love that. It tells the animals not to be afraid. I love that. So tender. Uh, you animals of the field, don't be afraid. Why? For the pastures of the wilderness are already, they're green. The tree already, it's bearing fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Already, look, you can look around and see God's keeping his promises even now. And again, if, if you get in that moment of despair and that moment of depression, when you get really deep down the spiral, you get to the point where you begin to doubt the promises of God. Heaven forbid you ever doubt the word of God. But here it's look, look, he's jealous for you. He cares for you. And you have tangible, visible reminders to help you in the weakness of your faith. He's given you a life leading up to today to remind you that he's cared for you every step of the way. And even now in the moments today, he gives you little glimpses that he is still at work. Ways that it could have been worse, but wasn't. Ways that the last second uh, events were ordered so that certain things happened. We've had this conversation in my family this week with my little niece, she was diagnosed with a hereditary heart condition. And providentially, on the way out of the hospital, they had their last pediatric visit, and they did not get their normal pediatrician. They got some random dude. Didn't know him. My brother-in-law's a doctor. Didn't even know him. Random dude pediatrician who happened to have been a cardiologist for 10 years prior to being a pediatrician and happened to be the one guy in Western Carolina who would hear this heart murmur in a scan. And you could go, well, look, I mean, it's terrible. You have a seven-day-old baby that's going to have her heart cut open and you're going to cut out part of the aorta, and that's terrifying. But look, God's already at work. He's already organizing events. So the, the one guy who needed to hear was the guy there. My brother-in-law admits he never would have caught that. And he's a good doctor. He's a really good doctor. He never would have caught it. Look at the past. Look at the present. Verse 23 uh, I, I think this is probably my favorite verse in the whole section, honestly. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for your abundant rain, uh, the early and the latter rain, as before. And you're like, boy, that is a weird verse to have as your favorite one. Mm -hmm. ah, you're right, it is strange. Because one, we don't live in ancient Israel, so it makes no sense to us. 
Because what this displays is God intimately and tenderly already knows what is needful. You see, Israel doesn't get a lot of rain. In fact, actually, they only get rain two times a year. One, they get the early rain in October, which softens the ground so you can plant your crops. And they get the late rain in March and April when the crops are ready to be harvested and it makes them thick and robust. You got to have both rains in order for a crop in Israel to do well. If you get the first without the second, you get all of your seeds planted and then they all die in the ground. Like most of the ones growing in my office, not growing in my office. Or you get the second rain, but not the first. You can't get them into the ground, but the few things that you get there, they produce well, but it's still this rotten little harvest because you didn't have both rains. I love this verse because what the Lord is doing is saying to Israel specifically, look, I know exactly what you specifically need. I mean, this is not a large set of world geography that needs these specific things, the times that they need them and the way that he knows. And look, I've already taken care of it. Rejoice in the Lord your God. He's given the early rain. He's given you the late rain. He's given them both just as he used to in the past. He's giving now Israel be at peace. He knows what's needful. When you're in the middle of your trials and difficulties, you really need to be reminded God knows exactly what you need. And not like just generically like, oh, I know what all people need. No, no, no. He knows exactly what you specifically need. He knows your feeble frame. And then lastly, uh, 24 through 27, uh, well, 24 through 26, he's the God who heals. Look at what he does here. Look, days are coming. Threshing floors will be full of grain. That means the harvest is really full. Vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Uh, when you actually go to press your grapes or to press your you know, olives or whatever, you're going to have so much that your tools won't be able to handle it. Putting this in Christ Ridge language, he's going to say, you will have more people than you do seats. Uh, I get it. I get it. We, we understand. Um, overflow with wine and oil, verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. He will restore what the affliction has taken away. I I think that was the thing that was the most haunting in reading uh, Uma Thurman's kind of mental processes. was just how much kind of longing there was at looking at this ruined my life. And I've been on an entire escapade attempting to correct the harm. An effort to find healing. And I'm not done yet because she doesn't have the right answers, honestly. God's saying, look, I'm going to restore it all to you. I I will heal you. I'll take care of all of the suffering, all of the difficulty, all of the tears. I will fix it. I will repay it. I will give above and beyond. I will make it all better. I will restore to you the years, the swarming locusts, eagle, the hopper, destroyer, the cutter, the great army which I sent among you. Look, I sent this army. I'm going to take care of it. I will fix it all. In fact, you shall eat in plenty. You'll be satisfied. And in that process, you'll be able to praise the name of the Lord your God who's dealt wondrously with you. That's really a staggering sentence to be able to say, oh, yeah, by the way, you just went through the largest national disaster in recent memory that any of the generations remember alive. And they're going to say, yes, 
we will praise him because he has been so wondrous with us, so gracious and gentle. And all of it is designed for one final purpose, that you will know that I am in the midst of you. That I'm with you. That I am the Lord your God, there is none else. That I am with you and I am God alone. You see, so much of suffering is not so much dealing with the body as it is a fight for the mind and a fight for the heart. And notice how God has designed this to help us think our way through it. To know that he cares for us because we're his people. To know that he's pledged himself to care for us. And oh yeah, by the way, here's a laundry list of things to think about, to meditate on when we are weak and sorrowful and sad so that we may be built up. Three quick applications in two minutes. There are a series of commands given here, interestingly, for the people of God. 21 and 22. Fear not. So much of suffering and affliction is dealing with fear. Uh, you know the term gun shy, where like if you shoot a rifle and you're not fully expecting it to kick quite as hard as it does. I remember the first time when I was a kid and they took us to camp and we actually shot rifles for the first time. And you're like, don't brace it correctly. And it hurts like crazy. You're like, I think my shoulder just got pushed into the next county. I don't really know what to do with this. And they're like, time for you to shoot again. No, I don't think so. I'll pass, thanks. They're like, no, no, no. <laughs> you have to. That's good parenting again, right? Force you to do it and you get past that. And you're like, oh, I can handle it. Or as a kid where you fall off the bike and you're like, oh, I hurt too bad. I'm never going to ride my bike again. Bikes are dumb. The Lord's saying the same thing. Look, don't be afraid. You, you feel the pain. You feel the agony. You feel the hurt. And the natural temptation for the people of God is to recoil away from it and to try to lock themselves in a room and to lock themselves in this tower and to disappear. And he's like, don't be afraid. I have you. You're mine. Don't be afraid. I've got you. There's nothing to fear. I have you. You belong to me. Verse 23. Again, interesting (laughs) imperative. Be glad. Be glad that God is at work, even in your suffering and your affliction. Be glad God is not absent. Be glad. And then 26. Praise. Would you praise him through it? That even in the midst of suffering that we honor the Lord for he has dealt wondrously with us so we will praise his name. Realistically, I recognize we're not a body that's uh, overwhelmed with suffering at the time. We have folks in the body that are suffering but corporately as a body we're, we're in a good place right now. And so I would encourage us to think about these things because it's only a matter of time until we all go through it individually or we all go through it corporately because we know We're creatures that are designed to mourn on this side of glory. Designed to suffer on this side of glory because suffering is the tool for sanctification. May it be that we learn to suffer well. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask your blessing upon us. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for how you account even for our weakness in trusting your promises for Christ's sake. Amen.